Hello, and welcome to episode one of the Venture Games podcast. I'm Chris Quaidu, and today I'm excited to introduce the first guest on my podcast, Justine Humanansky, investor at Playground Global. How's it going, Justine? Hey, Chris. Excited to be here. Great. Thanks for, thanks for joining me. So to get started, you know, I'd love to just hear more about your background in the startup and, and VC ecosystem. And, you know, I know you have a pretty uh, sort of unconventional path to, to where you got, you know, spent some time as a ballerina and did some other really interesting things. Uh, so I'd love to hear how you got here. Uh, yeah, sure. So um, I was a professional ballerina. Um, I did high school in three years, danced professionally for six years, and then went to undergrad, um, so I kind of checked all the boxes, but in a, in a different order. Um, and then I did um, equity research in New York for four years, which uh, is similar to your <laughs> background. Um, I covered consumer um, internet and then telecom services and infrastructure while I was there. Um, did the CFA program with the original thought that I would not do an MBA, I would do my CFA, um, do three or four years of research that go work at a hedge fund. Um, and then a, a couple of things happened. I realized um, I didn't kind of have that mindset and that I was much more interested in how an industry would evolve over, over 10 years than um, what a given company CPS was going to be next quarter. And um, I also really, really liked the, the tech aspect of the sector that I was covering. So I felt like I had spent enough time on kind of the finance part wanted to get deeper into the tech part. And so I decided um, that maybe I did want to get an MBA. Um, and then I kind of used that as a way to get to the West Coast and immerse myself in all things startups um, and venture. And I did my MBA at Berkeley. Um, and during those two years, I worked with a variety of venture funds. So um, Samsung Next, first round, um, was super involved with Dorm Room Fund, which is a, a student-run venture fund that backs student founders. Um, and then I also kind of did a dual track where um, I did a lot of research and spent a lot of time on, on blockchain and uh, cryptocurrencies, um, did research on that for World Economic Forum with blockchain at Berkeley, State of California, um, and the United Nations. Um, and now I am an investor at Playground Global which is a deep tech fund based in, in Palo Alto. Got it. And so, you know, you, you did mention I spent some time in the public markets as well. I'm just curious, how, what are some of the like similarities and differences that you see just between being a public markets versus a private markets investor? And what are some of the things that were transferable? Um, what did you like about uh, the public markets versus the private markets? Yeah. Um, so what I dislike about the public markets, although I'm not sure that we're immune from it in private markets, is just kind of the way I describe it is I like thinking about companies mm -hmm. uh, more than I like thinking about stocks. And those things can be very different because, you know, public markets have a lot of liquidity and so they can, they can trade very quickly um, on, on short-term events. Um, whereas in private markets, uh, it's not that valuations don't become detached from reality, but um, you just have more illiquidity or, or longer 
longer periods between liquidity events. And so it tends to be a little bit more focused on, on the long term. So I like that. In terms of transferable skills, I mean, I think there are many different roles you can have in public markets. So um, sometimes I think people have worked in public markets uh, in the venture world kind of get like all lumped together in one group, yeah. like public markets people. Right. But like a, a, a banker is like, pretty distinct from uh, an equity research analyst. So the, uh, as a research analyst, I spent a lot of time doing kind of like industry pieces or we wrote like 110 page report on like <laughs> the future of 5G and what that meant for network topology, et cetera. Um, so that, that's a skill set that is very relevant uh, in venture. I spend all of our time thinking about the future basically. Um, and depending on the type of fund you're at, like heavy research skills can be can be really helpful. Um, modeling skills are useful, but it's less of a component of my job because we invest in uh, Series Seed and Series A companies. Sure. You know, if you're like at a growth fund or a later stage fund, then those would be highly transferable as well. Got it. And then, so for those who are less familiar with Playground Global, um, What's playground sort of area of expertise? You know, what's your check size? What areas are you looking at? Um, yep, yeah, you might have to remind me if I forget uh, <laughs> the triple part question. But um, sure. in terms of like our focus, so all of our partners are our technologists um, and former operators, and so uh, we get really excited about companies where there's a scientific or technological innovation that's enabling value creation or where there's uh, a strong technical moat. So another way to say that is we prefer to take technical risk over market risk. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the companies we work with, uh, there's kind of no question as to the size of the opportunity if they can build <laughs> what they're talking about. And then obviously critical to that is backing the, the few people in the world that you think can actually build what they're building. Um, our core focus areas are next-gen compute. So, and um, I spend a lot of time in that vertical, happy to talk more about it later. Um, software infrastructure, life sciences, and AI and automation. Um, in terms of check size, we do seed an A, but uh, we index towards A. And so kind of our preferred check size would be five to $10 million check um, into an A round. We prefer to lead, take board seats, follow on, uh, very hands-on with the portfolio. So um, without getting too technical, and this might be tough, how do you actually diligence technical risk for like deep tech investments? Yeah. So. <clears throat> I, yeah, I don't have a technical background, if that wasn't clear. I have a heavily financial background, and we're dealing with a, a very technical companies. Um, but what's nice of, about Playground, what was very interesting to me, was that we have that technical expertise on the team. We also have a, we have a whole operating team. So we have hardware and software engineers. We have like a, ca a Kaggle Grandmaster uh, designer, et cetera. So I am obviously not the person doing technical, deep technical right. diligence. Like I need to understand what the workflow is or like the basic mechanism that's happening or why one architecture is different than another architecture, but I am not underwriting the technical risk. I think yeah. part of what my role is, is, you know, technologists rightly so get very enamored by novel technology. And so kind of my role is to step in and say, yeah, this is super cool. Um, but to then determine if there's what the path to commercial adoption is, if there's a market there, who's the buyer going to be, what's the timeline, 
uh, what's the capital intensity and all of <laughs> those kind of yeah uh, yeah those those issues. So that's more of what I'm underwriting. Okay, and so while you say you're not uh, not technical, I know you've done a lot of uh, work just like getting smart on like blockchain and and the crypto world, and so I guess you know obviously it's it's super hot. So <laughs> do you want to just talk a little bit sort of about, about how you got interested in it and how you like became knowledgeable about this highly technical stuff? Yeah. Um... Yeah, for sure. Like it's like Twitter's crazy to the and Clubhouse are like crazy because <laughs> Bitcoin's at all time highs for for people that are not paying attention. Um, yeah, so so I actually kind of like this story because it's unusual. I actually first heard about Bitcoin from my dad, <laughs> so it's like the inverse. Most people are like trying to explain to what their their parents or grandparents what Bitcoin is. It's yeah. the reverse for me. Um, anyways, the, my parents are developers and they had a friend that was just like mining all this Bitcoin. So that, that's when I first heard of it. I thought it was interesting, especially with the financial background. I think the concept of like, you know, digital money or, or what is the future of, of money and payments is, is interesting to anybody with a financial background. But I actually got super interested in it when I first started listening to podcasts or understanding what Ethereum was and, and thinking of it more of like a, a network or a computing platform. Um, but then wanted to spend a lot of time learning about it, but there's just a lot of noise on the internet. And so yeah. I felt like I needed kind of a trusted source of information. Uh, and blockchain at Berkeley was that source for me. So I got I got really involved with them and ended up through through being at Berkeley, um, et cetera, getting a lot of opportunities um, to work on different research projects on it. I think in terms of learning about a new sector, like I don't think there's a shortcut. Yeah. <laughs> but but this is also like a personality thing. Like I wasn't a Cliff Notes person in school. I was like the mm -hmm. only sucker that like read the book <laughs> and the whole book and like the footnotes in the book. Yeah. <laughs> so that was just like kind of who I am. But yeah, when I was at Barclays and I had to learn about telco infrastructure, like my colleagues were like, Justine, there's like a textbook here for you, like a hardcover textbook about like <laughs> optical transport. Um, and I did the same thing with blockchain. I read a lot of white papers and luckily had people that could explain to me the aspects I didn't understand. And, mm -hmm. and the same thing is true now at Playground is that, you know, I read a lot of papers, I watch a lot of videos and maybe the first time you watch the video, you grasp 45% of it. Yeah. Um, but little by little, like you start to put the pieces together. Um, and I do think that kind of putting in that work and reading stuff, even if you don't like fully understand it at first is really necessary, um, even for like a non-technical investor. So sorry, that's probably like a discouraging <laughs> answer for people, but like, it's just like a lot of hours reading stuff that's like pretty hard to understand at first. <laughs> yeah, so it could be discouraging, but it's funny. I actually think like, my process was pretty similar. So like Mobileye was one of the first companies I covered. They're like one of the leaders on autonomous driving. And yeah. I'd be at work like watching videos about autonomous driving technology or like reading white papers. And I actually think that stuff is like pretty cool, probably because I'm like a tech nerd. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, maybe to some people it's, it's not as interesting. Yeah, I mean, you're like a special person if you're reading like a like a telecom network textbook <laughs> in your spare time. But yeah, yeah. that's what I do. 
Okay, and so you mentioned earlier next-gen compute. Um, mm -hmm. What does that mean in English? Yeah, so, uh, pro well, I can tell you how I think about it, and I'm sure that, you know, people would define this in different ways. But basically, um, there's been a lot of talk about the, the deceleration of Moore's Law, the end of Dennard scaling, et cetera. And, and what these things mean, basically, is that we're coming up against the limitations of classical computing. Um, and that's a problem because <laughs> there are, are many important and critical problems that we need to solve and we can't solve them with our current computers, meaning just like for, for some of the problems that need to be solved to address climate change, it would take, it, it's just infeasible. I'm not even gonna put the numbers out there, but you, you, you cannot do it on a classical computer. And so there are different ways to try to overcome these limitations. And so you can do it at a hardware level with um, semiconductors that, that can accelerate the workloads. You can do it at a materials level um, that's like post-silicon. You can do it at the interconnect or transport layer. And that's like, uh, we have some investment, investments in optical computing. Um, you can do it at the logic layer and go post-classical. So we've invested in, in a quantum computing company uh, you could address it at the data layer, either through techniques that can reduce the number of data, uh, the amount of data that you need to train these models, which right now is growing uh, <laughs> exponentially and faster than, um, or at a level that's not practical or um, economical, actually. Um, and then, and the kind of the last layer that I think about it would be at the at the software or the algorithm layer. Um, and and there's companies innovating uh, on that in in classical and post classical. Okay, and then quantum computing has just been like in the news uh, recently. And so <laughs> again, without getting super technical, yeah, what is that? Um, how much of it is science fiction versus reality? Sort of like yeah. what's the timeline for this stuff actually coming to fruition? Yep. Um, so quantum com computing is just you're using the principles of quantum mechanics uh, to perform computations. And so um, they, it uses something called a qubit, which can, which is different than the binary bit, which is what you know a classical computer uses. And it just allows um, the qubits can represent many more states and possibilities than a normal bit can. And so you can do very, very, you can represent very, very complex systems with the quantum computer. And um, you can do these computations very quickly relative to a classical computer. In terms of the timeline, um, you know, it's not, it's not science fiction, it is reality. There are um, different companies that have small machines available now that you can do simulations on. I think um, there are different architectures and, and we've invested in a, in a photonic architecture, which is what made the news um, recently mm -hmm. with the Chinese team has done Boston sampling um, using, using photons. Uh, that's not the same thing as building an actual um, photonic quantum computer. And so there's a lot of debate about what, what the um, prevailing architecture will be. There are different ways to build the computer and um, it is not clear which one will be the prevailing mm -hmm. um, architecture. And depending on the architecture, the timeline looks very different. Got it. 
Okay, so shifting gears completely away from all this highly, yeah. highly technical stuff, right? So you Sorry. mentioned, <laughs> no, 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 it's okay. It, it'll be interesting to people who uh, who can understand it. And so uh, you mentioned, you know, your involvement in Dorm Room Fund. And so yeah. within Dorm Room Fund, you know, you were involved in both the female founders track and the blueprint investor track. And uh, yeah, I guess, could you just talk a bit about sort of what those are and why it was important to you to be involved in these things? Yeah. So first I'll just describe what they are. So female founders track is um, an eight week program. I think it's eight weeks. Maybe it's not eight weeks. Anyways, <laughs> it's a, it's a multi-week program that dorm room fund hosts for female founders. And it's basically to um, help the participants kind of go from zero to one. Um, each week there's a different topic and there's really prominent um, both um, female VCs and uh, founders that kind of lead those sessions. And so I think that's a great mix and that you get the investor and the operator perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was involved in, I think all, I think we've done three. So all three of those um, cohorts and then the blueprint track we've done two different versions of it. And the first one was aimed at um, Black, Indigenous, and Latinx founders. And then the second program was for uh, investors. And so Blueprint Track was similar to Female Founders Track, and that was a multi-week program to help founders go basically from zero to one and to help connect them to investors. And then Blueprint Investor Track, which we did last <laughs> summer, was, um, for students that are looking to pursue careers in ventures, uh, in venture, and and the reason these programs are important is because um, diversity and representation in the venture industry are I'm trying to think <laughs> of the the proper description uh, way 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 below what uh, would be represented in the population, mm-hmm. um, and I thought that finance was a, a sector where representation was low and then I kind of moved into venture and um, it was shockingly (laughs) it it was shocking um, how much worse it was than than traditional finance yeah I mean I I agree it's just like shockingly low Um, the statistics on it are just really terrible so I guess following up on this um, you know I know you you founded this organization called the, the table can you just talk a bit more about, uh, I guess, one, why you thought it was important for you to start the table and what it is you guys are trying to achieve? Yeah, sure. So we're, we're super new. We're like a few months old. But um, Brittany Walker, who I worked with at Dorm Room Fund and who's now investor at CRV, and I founded a, a community called The Table, and it's for um, female and, and non-binary leaders in enterprise and deep technology. So as you can, or I think the perception is that there are not many women in enterprise and deep technology. And that is that is backed up by data. But I think the women that are in the industry are doing really impressive things. Um, and so one of the reasons we wanted to found it was to just provide more visibility to the women in these industries that are doing really great work. And I think maybe not being as recognized as their male counterparts for that sure. work. And then the, sec- the second aspect was um, her and I would, you know, kind of went through the venture recruiting process together and we'd do weekly phone calls and kind of became like a support network um, for each other. And then we were reaching out to a lot of female founders and operators and uh, in my case, like academics in the space. And then, so we just wanted to create a community where we could like 
have that support network that her and I created amongst ourselves and, and just create like a whole, a whole community for that. And so what are some of the goals uh, or milestones that you all are trying to achieve? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Like I mentioned, we kind of just started this and, yeah. and we're like, let's see if anybody comes <laughs> or if anybody signs up. Um, we've gotten uh, a great response so far. So right now what we're doing is we host monthly roundtable discussions on different topics. So, you know, we did one on machine learning operations. We did one on future of work. We'll do one on cybersecurity. So those are kind of focused on different um different areas of focus for people. Then we have a monthly newsletter, which highlights work, whether it's like funding announcements or academic papers um, that have been published. We interview uh, someone in the space, et cetera. And so that's kind of uh, a monthly newsletter aimed at improving visibility. We're going to do once a month, uh, like a community-wide event that's to help people connect and network and like maybe get outside of their functional area. Um, and then we also have a directory on our website, which is, you know, people need speakers or they need a panelist or a mentor or they're looking for talent to hire. Um, they can go there and find some awesome. Why do you call it the table? Yeah, um, basically it's like a, a riff off of having a seat at the table or um, I, I went to the All Rays conference this past year and, and Glennon Doyle had a comment about the goal not being just to get a seat at the table, but to sit down and blow the culture up. So um, that's kind of where the table comes from. And then when you think about a seat at the table, to you, is that like being in the door? Is that being a partner? Um, how do you think about it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's more, um, you know, like what, what Glennon was referring to of, of not just merely being in the room, but sitting down and, and having a voice and, and making changes. Got it. Um, okay, and then going forward, you know, obviously it's, it's great that you're addressing these issues, but there are diversity issues in many different flavors in, in VC and yeah. in the startup ecosystem. And so I guess down the line, do you plan to address the diversity issues in some of these other areas, or do you think it makes more sense to remain more focused? No, we want to, and we've discussed this already. Um, you know, if, it, if we were going to start by doing women in, in enterprise, or it should be underrepresented in enterprise. And so um, we started with women, but the goal is, is to make it uh, for everybody who's underrepresented uh, in, in venture and in, in enterprise technology. Um, but as I mentioned, we're, <laughs> we're new. So we're just starting, like we're doing a focused approach and then we'll expand. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I will definitely be sure to subscribe. You can subscribe uh, as, a, as an ally or an advocate. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, okay, so you mentioned you're doing some work with the UN. Uh, can yep. you talk a bit more about that? Sure, so um, I'm part of the Future of Currency Initiative at Stanford. And as part of that initiative, we're working with the ITU, which is an agency of the UN. So um, they, they've written the wireless communication standards for like you know, 3G, 4G, et cetera. Um, and that effort is aimed at writing the standards for central bank digital currencies. So um, the effort at the UN is to create kind of global standards for those. Um, to make sure that you, ha you have things like interoperability. Um, the UN's focus is on 
how can we use central bank digital currencies to work towards the, the SDGs or their sustainable development goals um, as opposed to against them. And what are some of the bigger like real world impacts that you see coming out of out of this work? Um, well, I think it would be very uh, exciting if, if we had like if everybody was, was using a central bank digital currency. Um, not because I'm necessarily that excited about CBDCs, but I think it requires a lot of infrastructure in place to use digital currencies of, of all kinds. And do you see the world increasingly moving towards these like sort of digital currencies? Um, do you think it's legitimate, like the people who think, you know, money is going to continue, you know, physical money is going to continue to be used less and less and less and these digital currencies are just going to proliferate everywhere? Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, physical currency is definitely going to be used less and in, in some countries it's barely used at all. I mean, but then the question becomes, do you use something like e-money or digital money or is it a, a cryptocurrency? Is it a staple coin? Is it a central bank representation of a, of a um, sovereign currency? Um, and so I think if you, I think what's been happening with Bitcoin is really exciting. Um, and so you have you have companies like PayPal and Visa that are incorporating digital currencies into their products. If mm -hmm. you think PayPal has 286 million users, I think, um, that will now be able to interact with cryptocurrency through their through their PayPal accounts. Um, Visa is partnering with um, USDC so that um, people using their products can earn cryptocurrency. So you're starting to get to a distribution that could be mainstream. Another thing that's important about PayPal is that they're partnered with like, uh, I don't know the number, but many millions of merchants, which is yeah. obviously very important for um, mainstream payment usage. Um, and then you have a bunch of like Wall Street icons basically <laughs> comparing Bitcoin to digital gold and, and disclosing positions in it. And you also have... Um, big institutional um, asset managers um, kind of changing their body laws so that it allows them to, to take big positions in Bitcoin. You have some corporate treasuries where a portion of their treasury is now stored in Bitcoin. So um, it it's it's here, I think. So, somebody asked me this morning is like, oh, well, maybe it will be ubiquitous, but maybe it's 10 years away. And I said, well, I think, I think we're kind of at the at the point where you have big institutional asset managers involved, you have mainstream payments up like, like PayPal, um, and then you have the developments with central bank digital currency. So I think in one way or another, and, the, and we can argue about whether it's gonna be Bitcoin or cryptocurrency or sure. a central bank digital currency, but I think we're all gonna be uh, using digital representations of, of money sooner than maybe we realize. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. And then when you think about digital currencies and impact um, and, mm -hmm. you know, sort of just like enabling people who are underbanked or otherwise don't have access to money, mm -hmm. uh, I guess one, how important do you think it's going to be for the, uh, the development and adoption? Mm -hmm. um, and two, do you think it's more likely for digital currencies to become mass adopted in some of these areas that are already underbanked, uh, you know, faster than some of the more developed markets? Yeah, so it definitely has the 
potential to to improve financial inclusion um, for those that are unbanked or underbanked. Mm -hmm. And I, and I, I think we're seeing it, um, that it can also be very useful outside of the, the underbanked or the unbanked, but, but for everybody where you have uh, countries where the monetary policy is dramatically devaluing the currency and I'll right. put the United States in that category <laughs> right now. Um, and so that that's another interesting aspect depending on what on what the digital currency is right that's true of bitcoin that's not true of stable coins that represent um a sovereign currency that's still subject to the monetary policy but um i do think as we keep seeing the easing from almost every <laughs> central bank with kind of no end in sight um that an option that is separate from those monetary policies could could be very interesting Okay, then one sort of just closing question. So, you know, as you continue to progress throughout your career, you know, obviously I think you're going to be a great investor, <laughs> you know, but it seems like you're also very involved and just interested in the impact side of things as well and just, uh, you know, improving inclusion. And so mm -hmm. what do you think are going to be some of the biggest changes that you see uh, throughout your career in this regard? Um, and what are some of the biggest impacts you would like to have, you know, in sort of a, a perfect world? Yeah, a couple of things. <laughs> we need to have a venture industry that's representative of the population, and we need to fund founders that represent the population too. So that's kind of two things. We need, like, we need to improve diversity on the investor side, and we need to improve how we allocate funding. I guess the second thing is, like, I, we've, met, we've talked about, but I'm very involved in, um, digital currencies, cryptocurrencies. Mm -hmm. I, I think the potential for impact there is huge, not just on the monetary side, but also on the identity side um, and, and other applications broader than monetary applications. That's the second thing. And then the third thing is I, I when I thought about funds to work at, I did want to work at a fund where I felt like I could have uh, an impact that I didn't feel like I had when I worked um, at an investment bank. And so part of what I like about Playground is that we're really investing in, in things that will have a dramatic impact on, on the world 10 years from now. Um, so we kind of joke that we don't invest in uh, dating apps. <laughs> um, not that they don't matter, <laughs> but we're really looking to, to invest in things that, that will be like, you know, the next computing paradigm or we'll, we'll reshape how we think about aerospace. Mm -hmm. um, or will, you know, through automation enable uh, us to do things that we can't do right now. And so I think that's, that's pretty impactful. I think, I think we, at Playground, the way we say it is that we're investing in um, companies somewhere between impossible and improbable uh, with the, the ultimate goal that they have a multi-generational impact. And so I thought that was going to be the last question. It's actually not. <laughs> okay, <laughs> no worries. And so... Um, you know, sometimes you hear the line that, you know, some of these investors would love to invest in more sort of diverse uh, companies and they just don't have them in their networks or, you know, they just don't have diverse pipelines or whatever. So I guess, what do you think are some actionable steps that an investor could take in, you know, who claims to be in that sort of situation? Yeah. So it's a hard question. <laughs> well, so 
it's not a pipeline problem. It's like a network problem. Mm -hmm. So if you're not seeing those companies that the problem is with, you know, your network and how you spend your time, et cetera. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of ways now there's a lot of opportunities for investors to do mentorship programs. There's, um, a bunch of networks that you can connect to, but it's kind of like a personal, like, how do you, um, spend your time personally and, and who do you spend your time with and, and making sure that it's not all people that look, think, grew up just like you. Um, right. So it kind of, I mean, there are great initiatives that you can do at a firm wide level. Um, and another thing as investors, we have influence with portfolio companies, with board composition, et cetera. So there are some things you can do on like a platform level, and then there are some things you need to do on a on a personal level, since VC is like very network based. Yeah, and so mentorship has been something that's been really important to me, um, much more as a recipient, but increasingly, you know, as a as a giver of mentorship. And so outside of you know your work with the table, um, and you know, I guess the work that you've done as a mentor to me. Um, what other mentorship have you been involved in? Yeah, so men mentorship has also been um, really important for me. And I've had strong mentors that were like, you know, pretty instrumental um, in advocating for me or kind of getting me in the door um, at, at different careers where, where I maybe knew like when I started finance, et cetera. Um, so I'm happy to be a mentor. So I was a mentor for blueprint track and female founders track which we talked about um but it also was for envision and then um for blockchain i'm a mentor for stello camp and the algorand european accelerator um so that's like official mentorship but i i also kind of unofficially mentor a lot of um people at uh, in mba programs i wouldn't even restrict it just to berkeley haas but basically if there's somebody um who reaches out and i can tell that they're they're kind of trying to hustle their way in, into venture. I, I yeah. will always, always take that call and try to help. That's great. I'm hoping you'll get a lot of uh, cold LinkedIn uh, messages <laughs> after this. Yeah, well, the other thing that happens like very frequently is I, I feel like it flipped and I end up being the mentee yeah. uh, to the person that I was supposedly mentoring. And I'm like, I'm going to ask you for intros or like, I need you to teach me this. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it happens all the time. It's always good. I mean, it's good if everyone's uh, sort of helping each other and paying it forward. Yep. All right, Justine, I think that's, that's all I have for you today, but thanks for, for taking the time. This has been a great uh, conversation. I know I learned a ton. <laughs> I'm hoping, <laughs> you know, some of the people out there uh, learned a ton and some of the people who are way smarter than me <laughs> were able to, uh, to <laughs> pick me up. me too. <laughs> yeah, right. we're, we're able to, to understand a lot of the more technical side of this. So thanks for taking the time. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me.